I work on computational models of cognition, which means that what I'm trying to understand is the way that people do the amazing things that we do. Things like learning from small amounts of data, being able to figure out causal relationships, being able to you know, identify languages as we're learning them, things that computers have traditionally found hard to do. So the way that I think about motivating that kind of research is in terms of making computers better at solving those kinds of problems. But recently I've also been thinking about a different way in which that's a, a relevant kind of enterprise, which is that really with all of the successes of AI over the last few years, we've got really good models of things like images, text, but what we're missing are really good models of people. So if we look at the, the, the kinds of AI systems that are being built and the kinds of data that people want to understand, often those data have to do with human behavior. So trying to understand why it is that people are doing the things that they do and what the, the cognitive processes are that underlie the data that we find out in the world that's a consequence of human behavior. And this is an enterprise which is important for a couple of reasons. One is that it gives us the tools to make sense of these data which are becoming increasingly important as part of our lives. But the other is that having good models of how people think and how people behave is relevant to helping AI systems better understand what it is that people want and thinking about how to build systems that are going to be better for people to interact with. So, the way that I approach these problems is by trying to understand the computational structure of the problems that people have to solve. So that means trying to dig down and think about, okay, if we're trying to understand how, say, people learn a new causal relationship, how do we formalize that? How do we turn that into a, a math problem? That's the kind of thing that we can imagine getting a computer to solve. Once we figure out the structure of those problems, we can ask, what's a good way of solving those problems? And there we draw on tools that come from AI, statistics, and machine learning as the basis of coming up with hypotheses about how human cognition might work. And then using those insights, we can run experiments that test predictions that come out of those models. And we can use that as a, a, a tool for digging deeper into how it is that human cognition works and how it is that people actually solve those kinds of problems. So, there are two ways in which we're really drawing on these kind of computational tools for making sense of human cognition. One way is trying to characterize what we call inductive biases. The things other than the data that lead people to be able to reach good conclusions about the, the processes that might have generated those data. So if we try and formulate a problem of learning, like say, learning a language, the way that we formulate it is you get some data, you hear what it is that uh, you know, people are saying around you, and then you're trying to make sense of those data. You're trying to entertain different hypotheses about the processes that might have produced those data, different hypotheses about the structure of the language. And so we can formulate that as a kind of statistical problem. Take the data, try and make sense of it, try and evaluate which of these hypotheses are the, the, the right hypotheses. Uh, and what's amazing about human learning is that people are able to solve that problem remarkably well. That we're able to learn languages, and infer causal relationships, learn new words, learn new categories from small numbers of examples, uh, where you know, really there's not enough statistical information to allow you to have any kind of certainty, but nonetheless people do a good job of solving this problem.
And so the way that we have to explain that kind of intelligence is in terms of being able to have something that allows us to narrow down the space of possibilities. Something that allows us to kind of make good guesses, to come up with good answers even though we don't have all the information that we need. And so what machine learning researchers call those things, those things other than the data that influence our conclusions, is inductive biases. And so one enterprise that we engage in is trying to understand the inductive biases that inform human cognition. So how is it that people are able to make these sorts of inferences? What are the expectations that we have about how the world works, about the structure of languages, about the things that words might mean, about how physical objects interact that allow us to infer causal relationships, and how is it that those things guide the inferences that we make? And so one of the, the, the things that we try and do in our research is try to identify what those human inductive biases are like. And we've identified a, a set of experimental methods that we use for solving that problem, and we use ideas that come from Bayesian statistics as a tool for characterizing what those human inductive biases are like. So some examples of this are, uh, in the case of causal relationships, one of the things that makes people really good at inferring causal relationships is that we have strong expectations about how causality works. So if you take a statistics class and you learn about how you're supposed to try and detect a relationship, normally the methods that you're using don't make a lot of assumptions about the nature of a causal relationship. All that you're looking for is some kind of pattern of dependency between two variables. But if you tell a person, try and figure out if A causes B to happen, then people have a strong expectation about what that means. They think that uh, if A causes B, what that means is A occurring increases the probability that B occurs, and that it increases that probability by a lot. So if A causes B, then if A happens, then it's really quite likely that B will happen. And so those two constraints, this assumption that causes a generative, that they produce their effects, they increase their probability, and that causes are near deterministic, that if causes occur, then they produce their effects with very high probability, those really simplify the problem of trying to figure out whether causal relationships are present. You don't need as much data to figure out whether a relationship like that exists. You can just see a few examples, and that's enough to establish for you that, in fact, there is an underlying causal relationship. The other aspect of the work that we've been doing more recently takes a step away from that kind of abstract framework of trying to understand how people reason by thinking about just the raw structure of the computational problems involved, and focuses on another aspect of human cognition that I think is a crucial part of human intelligence. And this is our ability to basically kind of program ourselves effectively. So if we try and understand what it is that makes people smart, one of the kind of mysteries of, you know, of, of human intelligence is that we're able to do so much with so little, that we're able to you know, act in ways that are so intelligent, despite the fact that we have you know, limited computational resources, basically just the stuff that we can carry around inside our heads. And one of the ways to understand why people are capable of that is that really what we're very good at is coming up with good strategies for solving problems that make the best use of those limited computational resources. And you can formulate that as another kind of computational problem in itself. So basically you can say, if you have certain amounts of computational resources and certain costs for using them, then can you come up with the best algorithm for solving a problem? 
using those computational resources, trading off the errors that you might make and solving the problem with the cost of you know, using the resources that you have or the limitations that are imposed upon those resources. And so that approach gives us a different way of thinking about what constitutes rational behavior. The sort of classic standard of rational behavior which is used in economics and sort of motivated a lot of the human decision-making literature really focused on the idea of rationality in terms of just finding the right answer without any thought as to the, the computational costs that might be involved in finding that answer. And this gives us a, a more nuanced and more realistic notion of rationality, a notion which is actually relevant to any organism or you know, machine that faces physical constraints on the resources that are available to it. It says that you are being rational when you're using the best algorithm to solve the problem, taking into account both your computational limitations and the kinds of errors that you might end up making. And so this kind of approach, which uh, my colleague Stuart Russell has called bounded optimality, gives us a new way of understanding human cognition, where we can take examples of things that have been held up as evidence of irrationality, right? You know, sort of examples of things where people are solving a problem, but they're not solving it in the very best way, in the way that I sort of assumed in the first part of my research program. Uh, and we can try and make sense of those. But more importantly, it also sets up a way of asking questions about how it is that people get to be so smart. So how is it that we actually find those effective strategies? Uh, and that's a problem that we call uh, rational meta-reasoning. So how should a rational agent who has limitations on the computational resources that they have find the best strategies for you know, using those resources? And so you know, you're used to making decisions the reason why this is a, uh, an instance of meta-reasoning is that now you're making decisions about how you're going to make decisions. Um, and so with my uh, graduate student, Clark Leader, we've, we've been doing work exploring how we can understand human strategy choice and the ways in which people end up making decisions from this perspective of a kind of meta-level rationality. So, one of the consequences of thinking about this is that I think it has given us some new insight into some of these classic you know, human irrationalities, the kinds of things that were explored by Kahneman and Tversky in the heuristics and biases literature, where we can say that some of the things that we do there actually seem like pretty good strategies for solving problems. So one classic example of this is what's called the availability heuristic. So this is you know, making an estimate of a probability of something based on the examples that you can call up from memory, that can result in biases because things like, you know, plane crashes and terrorist attacks and shark attacks are things that are very salient to us and sort of stick out in our memory. People overestimate their probability as a consequence. But we can actually show mathematically that following a strategy like that is actually a really good way of making use of limited computational resources. So. If you're trying to evaluate the expected utility of, a, of an action and you're only going to be able to consider a few different possible outcomes, then it turns out that a, a good way to uh, minimize the, the variance in your estimate, and so you know, try and sort of get a, a, a good, less noisy estimate of that expected utility is to sample events based not just on their probability, but based on their probability and their utility. So something which is very bad 
is something that you should, you know, sort of over-represent when you're trying to evaluate making a decision because that's exactly the kind of thing which is going to have a big impact on your assessment of the relevant utility. I think taking this perspective gives us a few different practical insights. So one is insights about how it is that you can go about kind of being more rational yourself, right? I think, I think there's kind of a, a literature which is about how do we do a better job of solving the problems that come up in the context of our own lives? And I think one angle on that which comes out of this is maybe relax a little, don't feel so bad about how well you're doing at solving those problems because you know, I think a lot of the strategies that we end up using are things that do represent sort of a, a good point on that trade-off between you know, using the resources that we have effectively and, uh, and, and making errors. But I think the other thing that comes out of this is that we can really understand why it is that we're making those errors and understand that as the consequence of those limited computational resources. And so one strategy that that suggests is if you want to think about changing the way in which people behave, then trying to teach them you know, the exact right way of solving the problem if it's too computationally costly isn't going to be very effective. Another strategy that you can take is to say, maybe the reason why we're having the problems that we're having is because the algorithms that we're using are things which are biased in the particular environment that we're in uh, or because we're not able to devote the computational resources to allow us to plan more effectively and then the place to intervene is on providing essentially those resources. So one way that that manifests is uh, by thinking about if you've got a human being and you've got a computer and the computer has the computational resources but the human being is the one who's going to make the decision, how do you combine those things together? And one way that people have thought about doing this is you know, you make a computer chip that you stick inside your head that augments the onboard computational resources that you have. That's something that's probably a little further in the future than we might like. So we've been focusing on a different way of doing this and again this is with my student Falk Leader. We've been looking at thinking about how you can use the computer to change the environment that the human being is in so that that human being ends up making better decisions. So we already do this to some extent. If you've ever used uh, the strategy of gamification, right, where you're using an app or um, something like that which gives you points for completing tasks or, you know, sort of if you make something like a to-do list and you get satisfaction from checking things off, you're, what you're doing is essentially you know, using this external device as a mechanism for changing the environment that you're in. But we can go further than that and we can say, if you've got a computer which kind of has information about the structure of the problem that you're solving and can communicate that information back to you through a mechanism like gamification by giving you sort of rewards, then we can actually build a system which will help guide people to making more effective decisions by modifying their local reward function. Mm -hmm. And so the way that this works is if you've got a decision problem, you are able to use a computer to you know, solve it or at least partially solve it, then we actually have worked out the kind of optimal gamification scheme, the, the right way of transferring the information the computer has about what the sort of best actions are into information that you can provide to people in the form of points or modifying the rewards that they get for doing something, uh, such that people end up 
you know, solving the problem as, as well as we might hope. Um, and so the, an example of this is, um, you know, if you have a task that you're trying to complete, it's something where, you know, by getting all the way through the task, then you get some reward at the end, but each of the steps in that task is something which is, you know, sort of painful or frustrating for you. Something like writing a book or, you know, uh, another sort of long-term project that uh, is something where, you know, you sort of have these local costs. One way that you can make it easier to get to that point is by taking that reward which you get at the end and then spreading it back through time so that you're actually getting some incremental reward for completing each of those sort of subtasks that you need to do to get there. And that's a simple example because you know it's relatively straightforward to figure out how you should be sort of rewarding yourself along the way for achieving those smaller goals. Um, but we've shown that the strategy is something that can actually be used for relatively complex sequential decision making problems. Um, another example is if people are only able to plan a few steps into the future, but you have a computer that's solving a problem in a way which allows it to, you know, sort of plan arbitrarily far into the computer. Then we have a scheme that we can use for taking those solutions that the computer gets and then sort of putting them back into the problem as rewards that are along the way that allow it to uh, correct for the fact that, you know, even if the human being is only planning a few steps into the future, that human being will still end up achieving the ideal outcome. The most challenging kinds of problems that I think human beings solve, and this is challenging both from a human perspective and from a computer perspective, are the problems that involve other people. So uh, trying to do something like figuring out what another person's behavior means. Are they acting in that way because they like you or because they don't like you? Are they you know, doing that because they don't remember you? Are they you know, making a decision because they prefer one thing over another? trying to reason from the actions that people take to the mental states that they have and trying to work out what the consequences of those mental states are. So that's something which I think can be taxing for humans. It's something that we do automatically when you're interacting with another person. A lot of what you're doing is trying to reason about the mental states that they have. It's also something which is key to being able to operate in a society. So you, as you walk around and interact with other human beings, are making inferences about the preferences of those human beings and I think normally doing your best to accommodate those preferences, right? Um, you know, and those are, you know, preferences that can be as small as, you know, they want to go in a particular direction and you're just making sure that you're not blocking their way to as important as they prefer to stay alive and you're doing your best not to, you know, <laughs> interfere with that aspiration. Mm -hmm. And so, Understanding how it is that people make those kinds of inferences is something which is important not just to getting insight into you know, potentially how to help people navigate some of those things in their own lives, but it's critical to being able to make computers that interact with humans in ways that are beneficial for both, you know, I think the humans are the ones that we're most concerned about, but perhaps also the, the computers we might be concerned mm -hmm. about as well. And so one of the interesting things about that problem is that when you formulate it as a statistical problem, it's a problem where you're getting data, right? You're seeing the way in which the person's behaving and you're forming hypotheses. You're forming hypotheses about what it is that they want, what it is that they prefer, you know, why it is they're doing the things that they're doing. But in order to make that mapping 
from hypotheses to data and the, you know, make that reverse inference from data back to hypotheses, you need to have what a, a statistician would call a, a forward model or a generative model. And what that model tells you is, if somebody believes this, then they will act in this way. If they want this, then they will act in this way. If this is their goal, then they'll act in this way. We need to be able to make predictions about the data that we get based on the hypotheses that we're entertaining to reason backwards from the data back to the hypotheses. And so that sets up this problem of trying to, again, understand human behavior. Try and understand what it is that you know, results in the behavior that we see and trying to understand that as a rational process or a, a boundedly optimal process of people trying to achieve their goals through their actions as a key ingredient of being able to you know, work backwards and, and actually figure out what it is that people are, are desiring or, or trying to do. There are two interesting perspectives that this provides when we think about both cognitive development in children and social, cultural development, right, as societies sort of hopefully get better at solving different kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So when we start to think about what this implies about children, the first principle is that you know, we should try and interpret children's behavior as the consequence of some kind of rational process, right? Which, uh, at first glance, seems a, a, a little bit of, a, of a, a big ask insofar as children are notoriously, you know, irrational in the sense of at least being highly variable and running around and doing things and not doing the things you'd want them to do and so on. Uh, and some of that is that they just have a different perspective on the world. They're operating from different information that leads them to act in different ways. But some of it is that, in fact, that kind of variability is exactly what we might expect out of an organism which is designed to solve problems rationally over the course of its entire lifespan. So one of the ideas that shows up in machine learning research is the idea of the explore-exploit trade-off, where when you are trying to solve a problem where you're basically going to have the same set of options many times, repeatedly, so you're basically, you know, you're, you've got a, a set of places that you could go for dinner, say, if you're, you know, living in a city, and you're going to have the same set of options tomorrow. The explore-exploit trade-off comes up because when you're deciding to go out to dinner tonight, you could either go to a new restaurant, explore something new, gather some information, or you could go to a restaurant that you already know is good. You could exploit the knowledge that you've acquired so far and, and take the best thing that you've, you've discovered. And so when you're in that situation trying to make that decision, you have to trade off these two things. Do I gather more information about the world, which might be useful for me when I'm making a decision about restaurants in the future and might ultimately maximize my utility in terms of dining at these restaurants, or do I exploit the knowledge that I have in order to take the best advantage, you know, the, the, the best dinner that, I, that I, I already know I could have tonight, right? And so what machine learning algorithms do when they're solving this problem is basically uh, recognize that the, 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 the thing that you should be doing is basically exploring more when you first arrive in the city and exploiting more, you know, uh, the longer you are in the city. So the, the value of that new information decreases over time.
because first of all, you're less likely to find a place which is better than the places that you've seen so far, and secondly, uh, the number of opportunities that you're going to have to exploit that knowledge is decreasing. And so, exactly that trade-off also appears in human decision-making over our lifespan, where you know if we're going to face similar kinds of decisions, right? We have the same kinds of objects in our environment. We're gonna, you know, that's something which is gonna be relatively constant throughout our life. Then, you know, we want to wait our exploring to the first part of our lifespan and, you know, wait our exploiting to the second part of it. And so my colleague, Alison Gopnik, has, uh, you know, been pursuing this actually as a hypothesis about cognitive development. Uh, and, you know, I think what it says is that when we look at children, that variability and randomness that we see is exactly a rational response to the structure of the problem that they're trying to solve. If they're trying to figure out, okay, what are the things in my environment that I will most enjoy, then going around and putting everything in their mouth is actually a pretty good strategy for, for doing that in terms of you know, maximizing that exploration. So uh, working with Allison um, and uh, our students, we've, we've, we've done a, a few studies that have looked at how it is that um, this sort of picture of human learning as solving a statistical problem uh, changes as we look at individuals that are at different points in that developmental process. Um, one of the interesting things about that statistical formulation is that uh, when you think about solving inductive problems and think about characterizing inductive biases, thinking about that in statistical terms says that there's a kind of principle of conservation of learning, that you can only be good at learning you know, certain kinds of things. You, if, you, if, you, if learning well is a matter of having biases that point you towards particular solutions, then you can, you know, being pointed towards one solution is something which is gonna point you away from another solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if, as adults, what we're doing is, you know, kind of converging on a more and more tightly wound model of how the world works, that's the thing that gives us the maximum inductive leverage in the world that we're operating in, then what we expect to see is that children will be much more flexible as learners, that they're not going to be as strongly committed to those kinds of hypotheses a priori. Uh, and that's basically what we see across a few different kinds of tasks. So one example in, in the context of causal learning is that Adults have uh, an expectation that if you've got um, two things that could potentially cause something to happen, normally those two causes operate independently. So, you know, if I if I say here's my Blicket machine and I put some things on it, and you know these things uh, make the machine light up and play music, the assumption that adults will make by default is that each of those things had the capacity to make the machine light up and play music, and they were acting independently to produce that effect. And that's a good assumption in the world that we live in. Normally, if you flip the light switch, you know, those switches, you know, are, are things which sort of directly affect the light. And you know, there's there's a um, uh, there's there's a, a relative amount of kind of independence of, of causes in the world that we live in. So it turns out that if you have a causal system that doesn't work like that, one where you have to take two objects and put it on the machine in order for it to to light up and play music, and um, then kids can figure that out quicker than adults do. So that's something which kind of violates the inductive biases of adults, but kids haven't acquired those same kind of biases, and as a consequence, they're faster to learn that. 
Um, and that's consistent as well with this kind of explore, exploit framing where, you know, what's going on is that as they're starting out, kids are just having a much more sort of diffuse, less strong expectations about how the world works, and that gives them more flexibility to discover different kinds of relationships that could exist. So uh, at Berkeley, I'm affiliated with psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, and computer science in one way or another. Um, and those are all of the kinds of audiences that this work connects to. So most of what we do is writing scientific papers that are trying to introduce those ideas to those audiences and uh, trying to, to, to really think about grappling with these deep questions about, you know, how does human cognition work? How can we make, you know, how can we understand the things that people are doing and how can we make people better at solving those kinds of problems? Um, although recently, we've started to reach out to a, a broader audience and really, I think this is a consequence of the fact that we're at a moment where there's a unique opportunity for psychology and cognitive science to have a broader impact. And so, right now in the technology industry, there's a lot of data about human behavior, right? When you go to a website, often the company that has put up that website is collecting information about you know, what you look at, what you click on. They're trying to figure out information about you that they can use to show you the right ads, to make recommendations of the right products, to, um, you know, to, to, to use information about your behavior to do exactly what I've been talking about in terms of making inferences about your preferences and desires and so on, and then figure out how they can best satisfy those and in the process take some of your dollars, right? So understanding these kinds of problems, problems that are how do I make recommendations to somebody? How do I um, uh, identify people who other people will want to be friends with, say? Um, how do I uh, figure out, based on their actions, what people are interested in? How do I figure out what kinds of things they will apply a, a tag to? What kinds of images they'll label in a particular way? Those are all problems which are fundamentally psychological problems. But the way that they're being tackled at the moment is largely as computer science problems. So I think there's an opportunity which goes in both directions, in, in the direction from academia to industry and the direction from industry to academia. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, I think most of these kinds of data are being used in a relatively superficial way, where to you know, give an analogy, what the current state of data science is in is kind of the state that psychology was in in the first half of the 20th century. So in the first half of the 20th century, it was disreputable to try and study how the mind works because minds are things that you can never see, right, or touch or intervene on. And so what you can see is behavior and the environment that induces that behavior. And so the behaviorist psychologist said, let's get rid of the mind, let's just focus on these mappings from you know, environment to behavior. And that's kind of where I think a lot of behavioral data science is. It's if I show you this, then you click on this. Right? If I, you know, if you've seen these web pages, then you're likely to go to this web page. It's a very behaviorist conception of what it is that, that underlies the way that people are acting. And in the 1950s, what happened was a new way of thinking about, you know, psychology and cognitive science was introduced, which is to actually talk about how minds work, and the, the thing that made that possible was mathematics. 
having good formal mathematical theories that could be used to describe how it is that you know you can have an intervening variable between the environment and behavior. And so what cognitive scientists and psychologists are, are experts at is figuring out the structure of those intervening variables, right? Putting, putting the right things between environments and behavior. So I see an opportunity there for really kind of making data science richer and engage more and with these sorts of models of cognition that would hopefully result in more effective predictive models as well. On the other side, going from industry to academia, a lot of the data that's being collected by these companies is being kept as proprietary data and not necessarily used in ways that will give us the kinds of scientific insights that it might support. So, uh, for example, I have, a, I have two daughters and when my first daughter was born, my wife and I started using an app to keep track of her sleep. Um, and after doing this for a while, I realized that the company that had that app had more data on infant sleep than every study that had ever been run by psychologists, right? Um, and so there's a, a huge opportunity there to really understand things about, you know, in that case development, but more broadly how people learn and think by using these sources of data. And psychologists don't normally think about using data like this because the way that a psychologist answers a question is by running an experiment, maybe with some undergraduates, maybe online, and using the results of that experiment to sort of tease apart particular hypotheses. And this is a much more, you know, kind of the analogy I make is that it's, it's, it's much more like astronomy, right? That you don't get to intervene, you only get to observe, and the observations you get are on a very large scale and are very noisy. But that doesn't mean that there's no scientific value in those observations. And so I think it kind of sets up a new set of challenges for how we pursue psychology in the 21st century, which are about how do we make the most of these very rich but complicated sorts of data sets that characterize the nature of human behavior. And so we started a few enterprises that try and engage with that. So um, uh, my postdoc, uh, Alex Paxton, and I have been uh, working on a website which is called dataonthemind.org and what it does is collect together a huge set of um, behavioral data sets that have been publicly, publicly released and those publicly released data sets have been tagged with different aspects of cognition. So if you're a psychologist, you want to understand how attention works, you can go to the website, click on attention and then it shows you a whole list of data sets that we think tell you something about human attention and you have to kind of figure out, okay, how do I use this to answer my research questions? And so that bridges what we call the knowledge gap. Sorry, the, the, that bridges what we call the imagination gap, which is the gap between, you know, wanting to solve a problem uh, and being able to imagine how to use these different kinds of sources of data to solve that problem. Uh, the second gap that I just mentioned, the knowledge gap, is how do I get the skills to be able to do that? And we also have been putting together video tutorials and things which are about how to actually work with large data sets and things like that. And then the third gap is uh, what we call the culture gap, which is just helping people to recognize that, in fact, this is a good way of doing psychological research. And on the other side, helping people in industry to recognize that there's value in working with academic psychologists and cognitive scientists to try and solve these kinds of problems. And that's kind of where we are now, is starting to reach out to companies and say, you know, the kinds of data that you have are, would be really scientifically useful and we also think that the kinds of science that we do 
could be you know sort of useful from a from a business perspective. Yeah, rather rather than trying to do this in a way where we're focused on one particular company, I think the advantage of being in academia is that we can work with many different companies and don't have to you know sort of commit to having just one kind of data. Um, so I think part of my motivation in doing this is that I have also worked in machine learning research and machine learning has gone through this very rapid transition over I'd say the last decade where you know maybe 10 years ago most people who were doing machine learning research were in academia and then there was some presence in industry over the last 10 years machine learning has become more and more important for companies and as a consequence there's been this big shift of machine learning researchers from academia into industry. And now it's at the point where there are certain kinds of problems if you want to work on them, you pretty much need to be in industry to work on them because that's where the data sets are and the computational resources are. And so when I think about this, and I think you know, 10 years into the future, when I'm thinking about like what, what would be the next thing that might be like that, I think social sciences, you know, including psychology, cognitive science, are in a similar position where at the moment most research that's being done in those disciplines is being done in academia, but the kinds of data that companies have are becoming increasingly important to being able to answer certain kinds of questions. And so for me, there's a, a, a goal of trying to kind of preempt getting into a situation where the only way to answer those questions is by you know, making a commitment to work at a particular company, uh, by trying to establish some norms about how those kinds of data are shared and used and made available to academic researchers uh, and data on the mind is, is, is a mechanism that hopefully would be a way of doing that. So I grew up in uh, Australia. I was born in, in London and my parents moved to Australia when I was eight years old. Um, and so I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Western Australia in, in Perth, which is has a reputation as being the most isolated capital city on, on earth. It's a, a long way from anything else, but it's also a great place to grow up. So uh, while I was there, basically, I made this decision when I was going to university that I wanted to study the things that we don't know anything about. So uh, in, a high, in Australia, in high school, in the, in the last year of high school, you have to make a decision about what you want to study at university. So I think it was 1994, I was 16 years old, and I had no idea what I wanted to do, right? I knew that I liked math and I liked these kinds of things, but um, uh, I certainly didn't want to make a commitment to, to doing that for the rest of my life. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll study the things that we don't know anything about. So philosophy, psychology, uh, you know, anthropology. And that was what I, I sort of went on to university to do. And a couple of years into that degree, I was reading a philosophy book by Paul Churchland. Uh, it's called Matter and Consciousness. And right at the back of that book, there's this chapter on neural network models. And I was kind of amazed. I was like, okay, this is, this is fantastic. You can actually use mathematics to describe things like how brains and minds work. And so I decided right there that that's what I wanted to do. I spent the summer reading all sorts of books about neural networks and mathematical models of cognition. And then on the first day of the semester, um, I cornered the guy who I'd identified at the university as working on that topic at 9 a.m. outside his first lecture and, you know, sort of uh, managed to convince him that, to let me into his lab. So um, while I was uh, 
working there, I got the chance to, to, to begin to get involved in research and studying these kinds of things. And then, um, but I knew that there was a lot that I wanted to learn about computer science and statistics and these other disciplines. And so then when I applied to graduate school, um, I went to Stanford University where I worked with Josh Tenenbaum. And in the process of doing my PhD, I had the chance to do a master's degree in statistics, which was basically statistics, computer science, and machine learning. Um, and that really gave me the tools to be able to do the kind of research that I do today. And so um, I worked with Josh at Stanford and then at MIT, and then I um, went to Brown University uh, where I, I started to, to teach and, and to uh, met some of the colleagues who are, you know, continue to be good friends and collaborators today. So I think the, the real important ideas here are that, first of all, we can learn things that are relevant to making computers better at solving problems and, and smarter by studying human cognition. Um, and that's a view which I think is oscillated in the, in the AI community in terms of how much people believe that or not. So in the early days of AI, it really was closely tied to cognitive science. Um, so the, you know, in the 1950s, the very first AI paper was also the first computational models of cognition paper and you know, so, so um, Alan Newell and, and Herb Simon did this work on uh, the logic theorist which was a, a, a theorem proving system but it was inspired by how humans solve that kind of problem. And so those two disciplines were sort of tied together at the start. Um, over time it sort of oscillated in and out but to me it's very clear that in order to really make progress in understanding some of the most challenging and important things about intelligence. Studying the best example we have of an intelligence system is a, is a, is a way to do that. Um, and I think often people who argue against that make the analogy that, you know, if we were trying to understand how to build jet airplanes, then starting with birds is not necessarily a good way to do that, right? Um, but I'd say that, in fact, that analogy is pretty telling because the, the thing that's critical to both making jet airplanes work and you know, making birds fly is the structure of the underlying problem that they're solving. And that problem is you know, keeping an object airborne and the structure of that problem is constrained by aerodynamics, right? That by studying how birds fly and the structure of their wings and so on, you can actually learn something important about aerodynamics and what you learn about aerodynamics is equally relevant to then being able to make jet engines. And so the kind of work that I do is really focused on kind of trying to identify the equivalent of aerodynamics for cognition. What are the real straightforward abstract mathematical principles that constrain intelligence? And what can we learn about those principles by studying human beings? So over the last few years, there's been you know, significant advances in AI. And in particular, in solving you know, certain kinds of problems. Basically, I think there are Problems that involve you know, doing things with images, uh, problems that involve doing things with text, and problems that involve you know, learning to play games or sort of you know, other kinds of what's called reinforcement learning problems, where you have an agent who's kind of just getting a reward for pursuing different strategies, which also translates to uh, things like robotics. And in each of those domains, there's been huge advances, the consequence of using you know, neural network models that are very large, that are trained on very large amounts of data, that, that take advantage of large amounts of computation. Where I'd say 
the challenge lies is in seeing to what extent the same kind of modeling perspective can help us solve the kinds of problems that require reasoning not about images, text, you know, or reward, but about things like human behavior. So one of the ways in which human beings still outperform computers is in being able to solve these kinds of problems of reasoning about why it is you did the thing that you did, what it is that you're going to do next, you know, what the underlying reasons were behind the things that you did. For those kinds of problems, it seems like the, the symbolic nature of them, of being able to think about the thoughts that another person is having, seems like an intrinsic aspect of it. And it also requires having a way of reasoning about you know, this link between goals and behavior, and that's something which is traditionally filled by a model of rational action, that you, know, you want to do a particular thing, and that's the reason why you did it, and that's a, a sort of rational consequence of the desires that you had leading you to act in a particular way. So I think that having an understanding of what the actual nature and limits are of human rationality is critical to being able to make computers reason about those kinds of things. And making computers reason about those kinds of things is critical to having those computers interact with humans in ways that are mutually beneficial, right? That are, um, you know, engaging with some of these concerns that people have about things like AI safety, about, you know, being able to make systems that interact with human beings in ways that, that end up being safe. And so I think this is uh, a moment where it's more important than ever to really understand you know, what it is that makes people behave in the ways that they do and how to describe that in mathematical terms because it gives us the tools for building that bridge between humans and machines. So I think that there's a new set of challenges that are raised by <laughs> machines becoming more intelligent. Um, some of those challenges are, you could think about these as sort of psychological challenges of like, how do we interact with those intelligent machines in a way that's effective? And how does it change the way that we conceive of ourselves, right? Um, so those are things that I've been thinking about increasingly. Um, things that I'm not particularly worried about because the way that I normally talk about it, uh, we, as human beings, are used to being surrounded by you know, intelligent systems whose thoughts are opaque to us. Uh, it's just that normally those intelligent systems are human beings. So one of the things that we need to do is be able to establish enough context and enough comprehensibility in the ways that machines act that human beings are able to use the kinds of resources that we're used to using for reasoning about other people as mechanisms for you know, reasoning about the actions that those intelligent systems are going to take. One of the challenges there is that you know, if it's possible to make machines that are more intelligent than people, then you start to run into these issues of you know, it being very hard for us to be able to reason about the motives that actually underlie their behavior. And you can already see this in restricted domains, like for example, the, um, the AlphaGo system that um, DeepMind had for you know for, for, for playing Go is something where the moves that it makes are things that can seem relatively opaque to a human being because those moves are motivated by you know many steps into the future 
resulting in a slightly increased probability of winning the game, right? And that's a form of motivation which outstrips the cognitive capacities that we have. And so I think this is a, a moment where we're starting to recognize that we're going to be needing to interact with systems that at least in restricted domains are going to be you know, smarter than us. And uh, thinking about how to design those interfaces between humans and machines in ways that make it possible for us to you know, continue to, to, to interact with those systems in a, in a way that you know, allows us to continue to, 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 to function effectively is, is I think, a, a real important research challenge and a really significant social challenge.